There we go. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I've eaten really well. I think I've, I've gotten to know, a, I, I recognize a lot of people from like, uh, I think we had breakfast plans, lunch plans, and dinner plans for the last four days with y'all. So thank you very, very much. Uh, as someone uh, visiting and coming in and, and thinking about maybe living here, I, I don't know, you might have, you know, I'm kind of like, where do I sign? <laughs> like everyone's super giving. Um, so thank you. Um, this is our daughter. Uh, we, we, uh, her name is Hannah. And we named her after, you know, the story in Samuel. Her name is Hannah. And she, she is unable to have children. And she has this miracle child. Uh, he, she names him Samuel. But Hannah has stuck out in our lives for a long time. And so we weren't able to have kids. And by the great generosity of God's people, we were able to adopt this beautiful little girl in St. Louis, Missouri. So she's over there doing backflips and uh, cartwheels around your kid's palace. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I've selected a text for us to think about uh, together um, this morning. So I'll get right to it. Uh, Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 14. I have the slides actually up here. Verses 14 through 29. And... Um, uh, I'm going to try to speak to you today, and hopefully this will give you a chance to get a sense of who I am and how my gears work. Um, but more than that, uh, hopefully you have some kind of encounter with God in the text. I think that's kind of the point of reading Scripture, right? Um, but we're going to talk about uh, what it looks like to doubt uh, and to doubt well. <laughs> uh, it's a part, part of our lives. Have you had this experience? Yeah. Doubt? Thank you. Some of you are honest. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a part of our lives, uh, doubting and thinking clearly. And I think this, this passage helps us. Okay, so I'm going to read whatever, 16 verses here, 15 verses. And when they came to the disciples, oh, real quick, uh, that is, they... Jesus and three of his friends, his followers, uh, were up uh, on the hill and had a a very familiar scene. Uh, Jesus begins to glow and radiate. And his disciples, uh, uh, they've seen this before, probably not as eyewitnesses, but this is a familiar scene in the biblical story, in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and they're there, and it's this special moment where they get to see uh, the Son of God having a conversation with two confusing characters from uh, what we call the Old Testament, uh, Moshe and Eliyahu. And they have this uh, conversation that's not been recorded, but they're making their way down from this, I think it would be a ground-shifting moment. Uh, And so this is what happens after that excitement. They saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. That is the rest of the disciples. And immediately the crowd, when they saw him, that is Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. 
And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. I'm not sure how to inflect that. The text isn't really clear. Is it if, if you can, is he asking a question or is just restating? Maybe he's saying, if you can, I don't know. Uh, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, and it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, now why were we not able to cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You've read this story before? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, every time I read this, I get choked up. Like this, this situation is heartbreaking to me. There's a story in the book of Genesis in chapter 18. And uh, it's, it's about an elderly uh, Mesopotamian family. Um, actually, a couple. They're not really much of a family at this stage. Uh, but we're told, uh, this is Abraham and Sarah. And we're told uh, right at the beginning of chapter 18, so there's no mistaking what's about to happen. We're told that the Lord appeared to them. It says Abraham is just sitting. I picture him. There's a lot of RVs out here, I've noticed. I picture like one of those situations where it says he's sitting at the opening of his tent in the heat of the day, which is a mistake. (laughs) Uh, I've learned. Um, But there he sees, as he's sitting in the middle of the day, uh, three men. And it says that they are standing there upon him. And he, the text is very rushed. It's the, the language Abraham runs Abraham, fetches Abraham, hastens. And immediately he sees these three men and he wants to play front of the house. You know what I mean? He wants to be the host. He wants to give these travelers a respite. 
a moment to refresh themselves. It's like the 7-Eleven on the side of the highway as you're traveling. As it turns out, these men were traveling down towards Sodom and Gomorrah uh, to, to do a number on that, those towns. Um, but but these, these travelers find themselves uh, agreeing to be hosted by this Abraham. Um, and so he goes inside. He says, Sarah, come, come on, uh, make, some, make some bread, make some cakes. And he runs and he grabs the big calf and he sends it to the, the serving lad. Butcher, butcher the calf. Let's make a great meal. And he brings it out to him in this very hurried pace of trying to do all of these preparations to be ready for these three men. And all of a sudden the text slows way down. And Abraham is now, we're told, he's the one standing upon them. And he's just sitting by while they're eating. And I imagine these three men, like kind of like, Abraham, where's Sarah? He says, she's in the tent, she's yonder, she's in there. Why do you ask? Well, you should tell Sarah, you should know this. Um, About a year from now, we'll, we'll be back, we'll be traveling again. And we'll visit you, and by that time, you will have had a biological child, which is an outrageous thing to say to anyone, uh, uh, especially for a woman who is uh, more than postmenopausal. <laughs> She's beyond uh, the stage in life of having children. Now, of course, as readers of Genesis, we, we've already learned that this family is barren, and that's part of the point. God opts for barrenness, and it becomes this image of God bringing life not from death. That would be much easier, but life from a place where no life is even possible to begin with. So God is now, they're at the stage, and Abraham is is already has a firstborn son at this point, and I think he probably imagines that that's the way God was going to carry out his promises to this family for the sake of the nations uh, looking on. He says, no, what I meant to say was, I've tried to get this through to you, that your old wife will have a child. Now, she's right behind him, presumably in the tent, we're told. She's assisted in the meal, and she's back there. And I, I picture this uh, lovely elderly woman. Like, I can't believe it. says she laughs. But it says, Bakir Bat. She laughs in herself. She says this to herself very quietly, not like a, you know, an ex- explosion of laughter from behind Abraham. But she's obviously eavesdropping, and she hears what these men tell her old husband. And she says to herself, these are her words, not mine. She says, I'm dried up. (laughs) She says, can there be pleasure for me? It's the same word, can there be Edna? It's the same word for Eden, right? Can there be this, uh, this pleasurable experience of having sex with my old husband? Because, by the way, that has to happen to have kids, right? <laughs> that, that, that we have a story. Barrenness, by the way, is a major motif throughout the biblical story, culminating, of course, in the virgin birth. But, but here, they're, they're going to have to make love. And I don't know what that means to Sarah, but <laughs> she, she, at this point, is, she can't grasp the thought 
And who could, honestly? Who could grasp that? Well, as it turns out, the, 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 the text gets more specific and we learn uh, one of these men begin to speak. It turns into a first person common singular verbs and the grammar shifts. And now it's one of the men is doing all the talking. And lo and behold, it's the Lord. One of these men is the Lord. Isn't that odd? God himself is now there. It's, it becomes clear. We already knew that God had appeared to him, the Lord. But now we're seeing a conversation be, between this doubting couple and the Lord. Now she's laughing to herself. And, and the Lord says, why is your wife laughing? It's to herself. Yet God knows. Why is she laughing? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord, he says? Is anything too wonderful? And this question, which the Lord asks Abraham with his wife apparently listening in, reverberates throughout the rest of the Bible. And it's a question that confronts each generation of readers. It confronts this elderly couple. It's is anything beyond. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now, I imagine it's rhetorical. They're not supposed to actually raise their hand and answer. But you've got to let that rattle around for a minute. Because you're laughing about what God told you. Because, you, because our conception of reality is, tends to not be rooted in the immense creative power and abounding kindness of God. We get our information about how the world works from our own experience and from our universities, right? From, from, uh, from scientific research. And so we know what can happen and what cannot happen. And as soon as you're sure of that, the Bible becomes a difficult uh, guide for you. Because it challenges all of our certitude. It asserts that reality's reference point is elsewhere than just your experience. That God is able to do what He will. And that is the challenge. It's, is, is it not difficult to look at the world from the perspective of it's run by a good God who has unlimited ability. And all of that unlimited ability is directed toward His people. That's the challenge of being a person of faith. It's being open to the possibility that you might not see it all super duper clearly. And that's the thing, it seems, over and over in the New Testament, especially in the accounts of the gospel that excites Jesus. It's not people who are certain. When we aim for this sort of certainty, like I'm absolutely sure, I've studied it out. I know exactly what the point is. I know exactly what we're to do. I know exactly what's possible. I know how it happened before and we can replicate that and do it again. For those folks, which tends to be me and y'all, it's a challenge because it, it's, it's, it's destabilizing to believe in God, isn't it? I, I find that it is. Uh, I'm comfortable with that. 
But so this question, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? I see a lot of what God told Abraham and Sarah happening in this text with Mark. It's the same sort of idea. Our assumption about how things work are being challenged. Our unimpeachable wisdom is being pushed against. And so you have these men coming down the, the mountain from this literal mountaintop experience. Perhaps Jesus has still got like afterglow from this because the crowds see him and it says they are amazed. And you could, you could read about how Mark uses this word amazed and it, he means amazed. They were blown away. Look, here comes the Lord. And so they, they rush over to the Lord, but, but before the crowd even comes, Jesus sees the scribes arguing, the legal experts, the orthodox, those who have figured out pristine doctrine are engaged with the disciples trying to get them to see how wrong they are, I would imagine, uh, for following this teacher. And so there's this man who's, when, when I try to imagine our little girl suffering like this, it's hard, it's hard to keep it together even thinking about it, uh, talking to you. You imagine what this, this man has went through. Well, how long has this been going on? Jesus enters right into the heart of the problem. Now, let me, let me fix that for you. He says, how long? How long have you guys as a family been dealing with this? This is awful. Since, since he was a baby. This, we've watched our son have seizures and be thrown into fire and water. It's a nightmare. It's a living nightmare day by day you can do anything. Now we want to be hard on this man. If you can do anything, where's your faith, brother? Where's your conviction about what's possible? Haven't you read the text? But see, pain has a way of wearing on us. And you've been to many doctors. And now you've, you've sought out Jesus Christ. And you found his disciples apparently at the bottom of this hill. Jesus isn't around. Say, oh, good God, thank you. Jesus' followers. Here's my situation. Can you drive this unclean spirit from my boy? And the disciples do one of these. We've done this before. We know how to do this. Away with you, evil spirit. Nothing. And the scribes are sitting right there. Aha! We told you. Where's your power? Where's your power? Where's your authority? You see, this is where you've been off. We can go back to the stories of David and Deuteronomy. I'm not exactly sure what the argument was. It doesn't tell us. Perhaps it doesn't matter. But while a family is like almost literally on fire, what are the people of God doing? They're over here arguing and debating. Don't we do that? Don't we do that? Aren't we on the sideline fighting about, about what's correct and what's most appropriate and what's the best way of doing this and how do, what's our reference points and our sources and, and all of that while the world is crying out and losing faith because they came to us for hope? They came to us to see a glimpse of the kindness of God. Forgive me. But I see this often in my own life. There's this sort of 
missing the point, right? This is the way it is for us. Now, I don't want to be too hard on these disciples. Uh, And presumably, the gospel according to Mark has been fueled by the apostle Peter himself. So if anyone comes out looking bad in the gospel of Mark, it's their fault. They wanted to tell you about their deafness and blindness. And it's the running theme in Mark's account of the gospel. That these men who are closest to Jesus, best doctrine in town, they don't get it. They don't get it. And in fact, if you read and you keep reading uh, as their progression, it looks like they're going to get it. And then, holy cow, they have moments that would like, they have encounters with Jesus. I'll give you an example. One, one that Mark just won't let go of. Uh, they, they are out in a remote place in the desert. And there's over 5,000 people there. And the disciples are like, been a long day, t- time to go. They need to get some food. Jesus says, y'all feed them. You give them something to eat. He says, we only have five loaves and two fish. He said, go get them and bring them here. And the Lord, he says, y'all go be waiters and get them in fifties and hundreds. And don't worry about the food. And they watch Jesus. They have to be the waiters carrying enough food for everyone. Not just to have a little, but as the text says, no doubt hearkening to Israel's wanderings in the desert, they ate and were satisfied. And afterwards, when they have to be the busboys, they go around and guess how many baskets they clean up full of bread and extra fish? Twelve. One for each as a witness to your lack of ability. Now, Mark will say they didn't get it. It'll happen again. Same scenario. Same scenario. Come on. Same scenario. How are we going to feed these people? Like, I don't know. We don't have enough bread. It's unbelievable how the closest can be like this. Those who have been summoned to be a light are the most blind. That's Isaiah, by the way. That's the whole message of Isaiah, of which, no doubt, is Mark's greatest source. He's, he's, he's playing with a theme that comes from uh, the book of Isaiah. But they don't get it. Now, they're not totally blind. We're in a section. How are you doing? Okay. We're in a section in the Gospel of Mark that began with a man who is blind. And they bring the man to Jesus and he heals him. He spits in his face. Apparently that's an ancient way of healing people. And it doesn't take. And Jesus said, did that work? And the man says, well, I see. I think they're trees, but they're moving. I think they're people. Let me try again. Now, did Jesus fail at healing this man? No. Mark's making a point here for you. Mark's making a point. You don't always get it right away. And he's going to have to help you see again. And then we go into these, this section now where Jesus gets really explicit. I'm going to Jerusalem. The church doesn't like me. They're going to kill me. And they're going to string me up. And you all have to follow suit. They don't get it. He said three times. But that begins with a story about a man who kind of sees and needs help. And then that section ends with another blind man. Blindness is a big deal in, in Mark's account. They don't get it. So this father, how long has he been like this? Since childhood. If 
You can do anything. And he, the, the, Mark uses a word that a, a word for compassion, splagnitsomai, very beautiful sounding word, uh, it, that's only used to describe God's compassion uh, on, on his people. If you can have that kind of compassion on me. And Jesus is like, if you, if you can't, I don't know, if you can't. It's crazy. This is where we are. If you can. Like, are you serious? If you can. If you can have compassion on us, if you can help us. And he said anything. Look at what he says. Exact question that Abraham was asked. Anything can happen for him who trusts in God. Anything can happen for him who believes. So you're just not open to it. Now, by the way, just because Sarah and Abraham didn't believe perfectly doesn't mean God still didn't act. Isn't that uh, good news? Even though this man doesn't believe perfectly, it doesn't constrain God's ability. But the, the, the man is in a place where if anything's possible for him, he, believes. he says, I believe, man, I wouldn't be here today if I didn't believe. You've got to know that. But, but I doubt, too. I don't, I don't know. Like, I believe. I wouldn't ask you if I didn't think there was something here. But I also am not quite sure. And, and that's us, right? I mean, I'm so grateful for this. This line may be one of my favorites in all of the New Testament. I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Help me. What's the good way to deal with doubt? Right? I'll tell you what you do if you want to deal with your doubt well. You go on the Apple store and you look for a podcast that talks about deconstruction. And they'll tell you everything you need to know. And by the time you're done, you'll think you know better. And that old religion stuff is for stupid people. And you walk away and you high-five those who, who made it through too. Wrong. That is not how you deal with doubt. That is, not, that is precisely not what you do when you doubt. Isolate and try to figure it out on your own. Boy, is that compounding the problem of doubt, to try to figure things out. You see, this, the text says, the Father cries, help thou my unbelief. The same word used for, for the lament throughout the Psalms, right? Cries out, help thou mine unbelief. Now, why did this Father doubt? I can think of at least two reasons why this poor man did not have a perfect faith. The first I already mentioned, years of nothing changing. Years of nothing going how you wanted it to go. Dang it, I put in my time, why won't it go the way I want it to go? And I, I won't begrudge the man for struggling with that, if that's the case. You know what else hinders this man's belief? Those disciples over there arguing with the scribes. Because they didn't direct his attention to the Lord. They didn't offer a prayer. They didn't seek God. They got confident in themselves. They tried to cast the demon out on their own ability. So the very people of God get in the way of this man's unbelief. But this, this, I believe, this is how one deals with doubt. Step number one, get honest about it. 
you may actually be in a place where you're not really sure about all of this life with God. Just be honest about that. Because you cannot be helped if you stand there thinking you know perfectly when in fact you're completely blind. So it's first and foremost, I think this help my unbelief is a summons to actual humility. I actually struggle. And then it's a cry for God. Have you ever heard this? That God is the subject as well as the object of our worship and belief? Have you ever heard this idea? So we, we come to worship God. We're the subject. We worship God. But there's a good case to be made that actually our very worshiping of God is work that God Himself already started within us. That God has drawn us to worship. And so when we doubt, when we're not sure, the right way is because we believe anything is possible, even just a little. This guy's faith is better than the PhDs in biblical theology. This guy's, this guy's faith is better than the evangelists who have led great churches. You know why? Because it's not full of itself. It's not self-assured. It rests in the conviction that God knows where I'm at, and my only prayer is if, if I'm going to get better, it's going to be by Him. It's going to be by me reaching out for God to help me. But that's a scary road for a lot of us to be honest. And it's scary for us in the church when we encounter doubt, because this is a mighty fortress in the church. And oftentimes for me, I've had so many friends, itself too, so many friends doubt. We don't know how to hold in faith those who doubt and bring them before the Lord for prayer. Instead, we try to cast it out by clever answers and arguments and apologetics. Which I'm not sure is a waste of time, but it's almost a waste of time. Whoa. So, this man... I feel like he embodies what it looks like to believe. It's a sense that you see shapes, you see trees that look like they're walking, and you believe perhaps God could do anything. God, anything is possible for the man who believes. I love the honesty. This is, by the way, forgive me, I don't want to offend anybody with this, um, but this is why, for me, <laughs> uh, this is why I think Christian art tends to not inspire. This is why I believe that um, uh, works of art, films, music, uh, paintings, whatever else, that are coming out of the church, especially in the last 50 years, fails to move us. Because it's not Honest. This is why I think we look to the world, at least they're honest, because I resonate with that song, I resonate with that painting, I resonate with that movie, because you know what, that's my experience. It's not all on the surface and everything is fine. It's actually really hard to be a person in God's good world and trust Him. So I think, I think this man, I think Mark's point is this is what he wants everyone to be. Wouldn't it have been great if the disciples would have been like that in this moment? 
we're not really sure. We believe God can do anything. We've seen it. But we also like it isn't working. So maybe, guys, what do you say? Should we pray? (laughs) Should we ask God for help? For the sake of this man? It's it's unbelievable to me. How you doing? All right, I'll, I'll wrap up here. Now I know I know we have the Lord's table after after the sermon, so I I want to begin to direct our attention toward the bread and the cup. Um, but I'd love to have my wife share a few words, thoughts on this passage. Uh, oh yeah, you're gonna need this. I'm sorry. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here with all of you. I think it's so amazing to be inspired by how Jesus healed and how he's healed, you know, in this story and even how he worked through Abraham, which later brought Jesus to restore the world, which has impacted so many of us and healed us. Um, But I don't know about you. I don't know if you ever doubt, but I definitely doubt. Um, I also think sometimes things need to change and it's within my control. And God has given me so many opportunities to show me that it's not in my control. He is the one that's going to work. Um, but a lot of times it has come through doubts and through hurt and through suffering and through situations that bring me to God, that help me to lament with him. I remember Jason mentioned earlier that we weren't able to have children. And that was a 10-year journey of, of prayer, of faith, of doubts, of tears, Uh, It was a really hard time. All of our best friends were having babies. And, you know, why not us? What's wrong with me? Uh, It was a really hard and challenging time. And um, lots of ups, lots of downs. And obviously we know how this story ends or began, that God has blessed us with our beautiful daughter. Um, You know, and that took a lot of surrender and prayer, and that was definitely God and his blessing. But there's other stories that also haven't worked out that way. I know even um, the end of the story says that, this only could happen through prayer. And so, again, it's about God working. I remember even, you know, my mother being sick for two years and for crying and praying. And eventually she died. Um, and that also was a really difficult time. But it brought me so much nearer to God. And so I think the doubts and the challenges and the suffering in our life, like God is so good. He wants to heal. I can say that, like, um, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. If we can bring those things to God, God, it's not about necessarily changing the situation or changing the way we think that it should be about, but it's about us bringing ourselves to God and God healing us and also healing the world around us. And it's amazing that we get to be a part of that plan. So I pray that for all of us, that um, like in Psalm 62, it talks about that. One of my favorite scriptures, you know, to trust in God, he is our refuge but we pour out our hearts to him, in pouring out our hearts to him, our pains, in praising him too and rejoicing in him, but in our realness with God, allowing ourselves to be open vessels in which God can work to do amazing things that he has done and he will do. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I love this. You may not know this. I bet your kids know this if they're at least maybe 13 years old, we are at a time in the world where doubt is valorized. It's a sign of maturity, especially when it comes to anything having to do with religion. And there's much encouragement 
to take out the boards and reimagine the life of faith and, and tear it down to the ground and rebuild. And I believe that process needs to happen. And there's much probably in my own life that needs to be looked at, condemned, tore down and burned so that it can be rebuilt. But I think the answer for doubt is not more throwing our own ability at it. I think, and I know that sounds like a super oversimplified answer to turn to God in prayer in our confusion. And our confusion as, as churches, as whole communities. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's the sign of maturity for a community, right? It's not up to us alone. And I think we think that sometimes. we got to figure this out. And that doesn't mean God wants us to just be lobotomized. And, uh, I have no idea what to do. Let's just sing a song. Let's just study the Bible. I think we do need to think through what we're going to do. But I think the missing component, we're, the threat, I suppose I would say, for the church is that we sort of make God pocket-sized and unnecessary, except when we need to prove that we're right. <laughs> then we need to pull God out and show everyone, look, we're right. But otherwise... Do we depend on God? Is he large enough for us to imagine that he can move not just my heart, but nations? Do you know that that's a testimony of Scripture? He's the Lord of history. He moves nations, cultures. So we we have to, if we don't think that's possible, what's the next step for us? It's simple. Lord, help our unbelief. We believe we see shapes. We don't see perfectly clearly. Can you touch us again? Can you, can you touch our eyes again? Spit in our face again? Whatever it is got to do so that we can see more clearly. So that we can live by faith and trust knowing that God is the reference point for reality and what is possible. Amen. Jesus found himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed, Father, I know everything is possible for you. He prayed this exact prayer. He didn't get his way. (laughs) It didn't work out. But it's that very thought that anything is possible for his father that allowed him and fueled his march to his own death. It's the fuel in the tank. We know God can do anything. He won't just do any old thing. But when it comes to the purposes of his will, not barrenness, not financial problems, not arguments. Nothing can stand in the way of God, especially for those who turn and are open, that you could do maybe something I can't see. I only see five loaves, but I I think you could do something here. You take a church that believes that and set it next to a church who believes it's up to them, you're going to see two totally different cultures, (laughs) two totally different experiences. When we approach the bread, the well, uh, so much of the symbolism is lost by these thimbles, but I understand we could get sick and die if we share bread now. <laughs> so, um, but but this, this uh, breaking of the bread, this pouring of the juice is uh, a reminder that our salvation leaps out from the least likely place. The cross, that God has done the unthinkable. 
We didn't imagine it would greet us through such loss. But through the loss of our Lord's life, we've been open to a brand new possibility. And as we eat, we, we not just think about him, we don't just picture him, we have blessed assurance that much is possible with God, even the very salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this meal. Uh, we thank you that you are present and, uh, with us, that you, you see the darkness in us, you see the, the strength, you see the weakness, you see the doubt, you see the assurance. You know us uh, better than any father or mother knows their children, and we're grateful for that, God. From wherever we come to the table, whether it's uh, doing well and seeing clearly or broken and half, uh, seeing in half light, whether it's um, uh, joyful or sad, whether it's confident or frightened, whether it's uh, trusting or in uh, rebellion, God. Help us, Lord, to see. Help us, God, in the bread and the cup, uh, see our great hope. Uh, strengthen us by this meal, God, that we might uh, not only uh, be assured, but bring assurance to those around us. We thank you uh, in the name of our Lord, uh, Jesus Christ.